You're listening to 92Y Talks. In this episode, Peggy Noonan, a speechwriter for the Reagan White House and one of our most astute political commentators, sits down for a candid talk with MSNBC's Joe Scarborough to discuss the issues and candidates surrounding the 2016 presidential election. The conversation was recorded on November 4th, 2015 in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. So, Peggy, you're going to have to explain Ben Carson and Donald Trump to all of us in a little bit. But first, uh, let's start with the book. I'm, I'm just so excited about it. Uh, and let's start with the time of our lives. Tell us yes. about the title. Fascinating where it came from. The title comes from the observation of an anthropologist and writer named Lorenz Vanderpost, who said, I read this 10 years ago in a... In a biography of Carl Jung. And it so struck me, I wrote it down on a, on a piece of paper on a bookcase. Vanderpost said, the important thing is to remember that we are living not only our own lives, but the life of our times. And therefore, you have to be part of this thing. You have to take responsibility for it. You have to own it. You have to pitch in. And I think that's such a true statement. And, and, leave, and, and you also talk about leaving an impression. Yes. Leaving a mark. Yes, I, yeah. I also, part of, I think the, uh, the epigraph, I think I'm using that word correctly of the book, is two quotes. One is the, the Lawrence Vanderpost, but the other is from Pope John XXIII, who advised people one day in Mass, do not go through life without leaving worthy evidence of your passage. So I saw that and I wrote it down, put it on a door. So that became the, the second epigraph. You should see my apartment. There's a lot of things written all over. Yeah. Um, I think that's what all writers are trying to do, leave worthy evidence of their passage through life. It's probably what everybody's trying to do one way or another. Right. Well, let's talk about the process of writing the book because it sounds fascinating. In fact, it, it, you could almost envision it uh, as a movie, you pulling these boxes out. Yeah. And with every box, another memory. And in fact, with every box that you pulled out of your work, you said that you actually realized that you had been something that, well, you hated considering yourself, and that is a pioneer for several reasons. Yeah. Because if you're a pioneer, it just sounds like you're old. Because it means you're and old. You're, you're, and you know, you're like, a pioneer but, is a person who needs moisturizer. Yes. Like, you know, a pioneer just sounds almost tragic. By, by the way, I'm going to have you get into the art, the, 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 the do's and don'ts of great writing. Okay. I can tell you the do's and don'ts of great TV. There are three basic rules in television. Three, moisturize, moisturize, and moisturize. <laughs> so our job, much easier than your job, Peggy. Uh, but, but in the writing part, when you pulled out these boxes, one was a lot of great work from CBS News. Yeah. Then the Reagan White House. Yes. And then, of course, the Wall Street Journal. Yes. I want to start with the box marked CBS News. Here you said, and nobody would dispute it, that you had the great honor of working with the greatest broadcast journalists of the 20th century. Absolutely. Talk about that. 
I entered, I came down to uh, CBS. I'd been working at a CBS-owned radio station uh, in Boston in the mid-70s. In the late 70s, I came down to CBS News, which some of you have been to, the broadcast center over on West 57th Street. I walked in there. I was part of this wave of young people, and especially young women, who for the first time were coming into the CBS newsroom and taking jobs as editors and producers and writers. I was a writer. Now, to write for broadcast, to write for radio, which is what I was doing, I'd been doing that a bit in Boston, but now I was gonna be doing it in a big way in New York, in the leagues, at the network, so I'm very excited. And I would write my shows, and I would hand my broadcasts in, and I mean like the eight o'clock news in the morning, the World News Roundup, the 9 a.m. news, like a nine-minute show. I would give my scripts to these old fellows who, to me, were very ancient, tragically ancient. They were like 56 <laughs> and 64. And they, to me, they were just like old guys, and I thought, you know, they're very nice. They would correct my work, sometimes in a very soft and gentle and kindly way, sometimes in a stricter way. They would explain to me how, listen, kid, you are writing here at CBS not for the eye, but for the ear. You are writing words in the air. They're gonna come out of a radio and they're gonna hit people once and they're gonna hear them in their head and they're gonna understand what you're saying or not understand what you're saying. I had been trained as a person who wrote for the eye. I was a print writer. That's so much easier when you write for print if you write something that's a little obscure and nobody understands it, they can read it again. They can read it again. They can hold it in their hands and, and, and try to comprehend what you're doing. For radio and for TV, it's different. You get one chance. So these old guys would explain this to me. And then they'd go through my copy and they'd explain why the first sentence didn't work and why the third sentence was really my lead. But the first sentence, if cut shorter, could be the second sentence. They kind of drove me crazy, but I kind of learned by osmosis. And I learned because they were patient. I learned in a few cases because they were just a little tough with me. Anyway, little time passes, and I realize who these men are. And I'm talking to them about their pasts. These men were Charles Collingwood, Douglas Edwards, mm. Richard C. Hodlett, Dallas Townsend. These guys took the time to teach me and my friends how to write. They were the Murrow boys. They had been taught by Edward R. Murrow himself when they were young people my age then in World War II. They had been taught by Murrow the invention of this new thing called writing for the ear because it was the invention of radio. These were the guys who covered um, World War II with Ed Murrow who invented a new way, really, of human communication. And they were now old guys in a newsroom. And I was getting the last of them and the best of them. It was an incredibly lucky fact of my life. And I would go through, when I went through the boxes, I'd see little notes from them saying, cheer up. I mean, clearly I'd had some bad days. There were little <laughs> notes from Charles Collingwood saying, cheer up, it'll be okay. Um, whatever that was about. Cheer up, yeah. we dealt with the London Blitz. Yeah. You can handle a bad <laughs> note. Yeah. So, so <clears throat> anyway, <clears throat> I beg your pardon. 
This is third day of book tour voice. Um, anyway, it was, I was immensely fortunate to be there and to be taught by great veterans. You, you were talking before about how they were explaining writing for the page was different than writing for the ear. Mm -hmm. But you said something fascinating in the book about the craft of writing. Mm. You said it's really the same thing. Yeah. I mean, you said it's like <clears throat> laying pipe. Explain yes. that. Um, the best thing, the best... <coughs> John Gregory Dunn, the novelist, once said, writing is laying pipe. It's just like laying pipe, only the pipes are thoughts. I thought that was a great thing to say. David McCullough, the great historian, later said to me in conversation, look, it's this easy. To write is to think. And to write well is to think well. End of story. I just thought, whoa, that so demystifies what writing is, and yet it, for, to my mind, it utterly defines what I experience it to be. Let's talk about the next big box. And that was the, 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 the box of, of writings for, really, as you say, the last Republican president that at least we Republicans look at <clears throat> as an unqualified success. Yeah. And that is Ronald Reagan. Yes. Um, I'm sure it's a great irritant to you that every person that steps on the stage will quote Ronald Reagan today when they have so very little in common with Ronald Reagan, certainly with his temperament. Oh, you mean everybody running for president now? I mean Claim, yeah. every Republican that has run since 1988 claiming to be Ronald Reagan that but is have totally nothing true. to do with Ronald Reagan. Totally true. Um, but talk about that honor going in there. And I really want to key in, obviously, on a speech that we still all remember today uh, and a speech that you wrote about uh, the, the challenger. Yeah. And talk, the, about, yeah. talk about that day and talk about um, the process of putting together one of the greatest political speeches uh, of the past quarter century. That, that day... So we're talking about the day, when was it, 30 years ago, 1985? I'd, I'd rather yeah. not count. Yeah, okay. At least 30 years ago. I was only 12. Yes. It was, <laughs> it was so funny that they broke child labor laws yes. to let me be there. Yes. But how like them. <laughs> um, look, one day in January 1985, we all went to work. In the book, I've got a lecture that I gave at Harvard University. I was visiting Harvard for a semester, and I went to speak to a great government class, Roger Porter's uh, History of the American Presidency class. And in this class, there's all these kids who are going to go into government. They're undergraduates and postgraduate, and they are all going to go into State Department, executive office building, wherever, but they mean to go into government. So Roger said to me, come and talk to them about a day in your life as a government worker when you were a speechwriter. And I said, can I tell them about the Challenger disaster? He said, yes. So this is what I told him. It's January of 1985, regular day, slow day in the, the uh, speechwriting department. Here's why. The president was to have his State of the Union address that night. Well, that meant slow day in speechwriting. Why? Because the work was done. The president had already edited, he'd already sent it back, drafts had gone back and forth, he'd already rehearsed it. We had nothing to do. We were happy. 
Everything was going to be a nice, slow post-Christmas day. I'm sitting there in my office talking on the phone, chatting with somebody, catching up. Have a TV to, over to my left. CNN is on. I have the sound off. But suddenly I saw out of the, the side of my eye some funny picture, beautiful blue sky, but some funny broken cloud, like a shattered funnel of cloud. I looked at it and thought, what the heck is that? Hung up the phone, put up the sound. There was no sound on CNN. There was only the staticky sound of, of uh, lines of communication that were open but not being used. I thought, whoa, something really bad has happened here. At a certain point, I came to understand, holy mackerel, that was the challenger, and it appears to have blown up before our eyes. This was so shocking. I mean, America had never experienced an in-flight day like that, an in-flight tragedy like that in the space program. We were just used to total success. At a certain point, after a few minutes, my boss, a guy named Ben Elliott, his little daughter, Meredith, age six or seven or eight, came into my office. For some reason, she was with her dad at work that day. She came in and she looked at me as I looked at the TV and she said, the teacher was on the rocket. Is the teacher all right? Oh my God, it was so piercing. So that was the moment when I realized, I mean, I remembered in the previous few days, I must have read in the papers, oh my God, every school child in America was watching this live. They had pulled TV into auditoriums in all the public schools, and all the kids were watching. So a um, few things were apparent immediately. This is a really terrible thing. Oddly enough, believe it or not, looking back, we all hoped for a while there would be survivors. The power of human denial is so strong. You couldn't have looked at what happened and seen that tape and thought there might have been a survivor but they launched a search and recovery effort immediately and we were all hoping. And there were rumors all around, oh my gosh, no, some of them pulled the parachute and the capsule came down and it's floating out there. All right, so something bad has happened. I knew the president would have to speak about it and would have to speak fairly quickly. I think it was about 11 or 11 in the morning when this happened. I went to my boss and I said, he's gonna have to speak at some point, I'm gonna start on it. My boss is on the phone handling the crisis. What are we doing about the, the uh, State of the Union? He says, go take care of it. So I sit down and I start to write and I just tried to think like Ronald Reagan. What would Reagan say? What would he be thinking? I'm taking notes, writing them in a computer. When a woman runs in from the National Security Council, her name was Karna Small. She had, by luck, just been with the president. She'd been with him at a meeting when word came of the explosion. She had the wit and the brains to take constant notes as he spoke in his office, in the Oval Office, on the phone, two people there. She runs to me with the notes. She says, this is what the president said. I was so relieved because I thought there was no chance we were going to be able to speak to the president today because he is handling a disaster and canceling a State of the Union speech and talking to NASA and meeting with all those people. All right, so I've got it. I put this speech together rather quickly as I waited to find out when the president would be speaking. We got the speech through staffing. Um, the staffing process in, in a White House, 
means that about 30 people will see a presidential speech and then critique it and remove sentences and add sentences. And you take all of these critiques and you, by tradition, attempt to incorporate them. One of the reasons the challenger speech was, a, was a successful as a document is that there was no time for the uh, staffing process to really kick in. <laughs> because, you know, everybody, I do this too, we all get excited, something big happens, somebody writes something, you look at it, it couldn't possibly be adequate. So being human, you sort of uh, get into changing it all around. We had no time for staffing, really. Um, small little note, you remember that that speech ends with a quote by the, uh, by the poet John Gillespie McGee Jr. from his poem, High Flight. It is uh, the part in which he talks about the joy of flying, and he talks about uh, going up so very high where he felt he had slipped the surly bonds of earth and touched the face of God. It's a very moving poem. Here's what happened to me as a writer. I'm working on this speech. I've still got CNN on the side, on the TV on the side. CNN is trying to fill air over and over for four hours as they advance the story. What do they fill it with? The last tape they have of the astronauts uh, and Krista McAuliffe, who'd been on the Challenger. They had all left that morning at 6 o'clock in the morning to get into the space shuttle. And they left, of course, you know, that jolly picture of astronauts. They were in their astronaut uniforms, their outfits, their, what's the word I mean, Joe? Their, their... Uniforms. Their uniforms. <laughs> they were in their astronaut, astronaut. big bulky uniforms with those big space bulky spacesuits. Thank you. They were in their spacesuits with those big bulky uh, gloves. And they would comically wave goodbye to the cameras as they went to the van to go to the Challenger. And so I kept seeing them over and over again, literally waving goodbye. It made me think of this poem by John Gillespie McGee Jr. that I had learned in the seventh grade out in the public schools of Massapequa, Long Island. So here's what I knew. I thought, I'm going to put that in the speech. That's going to be the end of the speech. But Ronald Reagan is never going to use it if he doesn't know that poem. If he, if he knows that poem, it'll be important to him, and he is going to use it. If he doesn't know that poem, that is going to be gibberish to him, and he's just going to eject it. So I had to write two endings, actually. I had to also end the speech earlier, a paragraph earlier, so that he could dump out of it at that point. We get the speech to the president. The president makes his changes. There's a few add-ons, this and that. We put on the TV. It was late afternoon at this point. The president gave the speech. The president looked stricken when he gave the speech. He looked, if you ever see a tape of it, didn't he look not like Reagan? He, yeah, he, he, he yeah. deeply he, moved, deeply touched. I, and I remember seeing the speech and seeing him hug the families. And oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. At, at the eulogy. At the eulogy, at, at the eulogy for them. Extraordinary. So, so Reagan comes on, and he's talking, and he's giving the speech. He had this stricken look on his face, and I thought he is profoundly unhappy. I, I knew he was sad about what had happened, and I also just got the impression he's not happy right now. 
I felt that he wasn't happy with the speech. And I picked it up, and then I wasn't happy with the speech. And none of us were happy with the speech. We all went home even sadder than we normally would have. By the next morning, things had turned around. There was a sense that it was okay. I came into the office to, to um, congratulatory phone calls from people who didn't call me, like the Secretary of State and like Tip O'Neill. But best, of course, was Ronald Reagan who called me, and almost the first thing he said was, how did you know I knew that poem? <laughs> and I said, oh man, Mr. President, I didn't know. I took a chance, I had a little hunch that you probably did, it had been a famous poem, but, but I wasn't sure of it. And he told me indeed how he knew it. It was written, the poem High Flight was written on the plaque outside his daughter Patty's uh, grade school. And when he would take her to school in the morning, sometimes he'd go by and just read the plaque. Mm. And so he was very familiar with it. He admitted to me, by the way, he said, unbidden, he said, you know, after I gave that speech, I thought that speech didn't cut it. It just wasn't good. In Lincoln's phrase, when Abe Lincoln thought a speech had worked, he said it scoured. By scoured, he meant it was like a hoe that cut up the ground. That's what a great speech was to Lincoln. Well, Reagan thought that speech didn't scour. And then he kind of got such a reaction that he went back and rethought it and thought maybe it did work. I said, well, who told you? Who called you? And he said, and this was so Reagan, he said, well, actually, Frank Sinatra called me. <laughs> he said, and Frank doesn't call after every speech. <laughs> so Sinatra gives him a rave, oh, and wow. then he's getting other calls. Did I ever tell you that? <laughs> and so, and so no, that was the end of that. But I'll tell you, just not to go off too long on this, but the great challenge of that speech had to do with that little girl coming into my office and saying, is the teacher all right? Teacher was on the rocket. I realized at that point that, that this would be a presidential address from the Oval Office that would have to talk to eight-year-olds eight without patronizing them, and at the same time talk to people who were 78 years old, and not as disturbed as the children because they'd understand a lot, but still be very upset and very saddened. Also, the speech had to talk to the world. 1985, it was still a very mischievous world in, in terms of US and Soviet relations. So Reagan was gonna have to make it clear, nothing stops here. And we don't keep anything secret here and we let the whole world see it. But he had to sort of say between the lines, and by the way, don't be messing with us while we're mourning. So to talk to children and to talk to older people and not patronize anybody was, was the chief uh, challenge of that speech. And by the end, he felt, and by the end, I felt that, that, that it had worked. And what do you know? I was 12 years old. Holy oh, mackerel. It really is. It is. Isn't that something that you read reviews of the Gettysburg Address the day after from newspapers? And oh, was, that's true. And again, it was a big failure. And it was a huge failure, a boring speech here. You talk and about And he thought speech. it was, too. Poor Lincoln thought it was, too. Yeah. You don't know what works. The funniest thing in, in the world, in your world, in the world of television and news, in the world of broadcasting and also the world of politics, the funny, funniest thing is you never know what will land. You know that right. term? Sometimes it lands, right. sometimes it doesn't. 
you never know. Uh, yeah, I, I usually don't remember half of what I say by five o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, that's from getting up too early and talking for three hours. So let's, let's go to the other side of the equation. Here you have a speech that's remembered as one of the great speeches of our time that initially was panned. Give me, a, give me an example of whether it's a speech or a column or something else where you really thought, man, I hit that one out of the park. And it just landed with a thud. Oh, does man, one, does, that is Does a... one come to mind? Um, uh... Of course not, because they're all great. No, okay, no, next question. No, no. No, no, you know it's, what I'm more conscious one. of? Right. The huge mistakes. It's funny, as I went through these boxes of my work, once I decided I'm going to do a collection, I want to do this if I think I can make this work and it's, and it's worthy. I knew, looking through those boxes, about the mistakes I had made. And I thought, now I'm going to find 28,000 more mistakes. But I didn't. I just found every mistake I knew I'd made, were, which so told me you, you never forget right. your mistakes. You, you, you write that you remembered all the mistakes, and you remembered almost all of your columns. Oh, yeah. But only a few you forgot. But yeah. you said sometimes, and now we're, of course, moving to the Wall Street Journal box, but you said sometimes you were actually surprised by how right you had gotten things. And one of those columns that really stood out of my mind uh, that you talked about was what you were thinking as you watched Bill Clinton's farewell speech. And you actually wrote, I wonder if this guy is going to be remembered for the one that got away, for Osama bin Laden. You wrote that as Bill Clinton was leaving office. That was about nine months, I guess, before 9-11. Right. What, what in the world? And it, I mean, I was, when you wrote that, I was actually a member of the Armed Services Committee in Congress. And I guarantee you, while we were obviously concerned about bin Laden and had a lot of security <laughs> briefings about bin Laden and knew what he was doing, yeah. I don't know that anybody on that committee would have written that as as Bill Clinton was leaving office. In fact, you go back and you look at the New York Times editorial pages and the, Wall- and the uh, Washington Post editorial pages, they were warning of Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction. Isn't that something? So what, what pulled you to Osama bin Laden? I'd been watching Al-Qaeda and Osama for a while. I live in New York City. They had, those bad guys had essentially hit the Twin Towers before when I lived here about when was it, about 1994, 93, 93, 93 94, yeah. they had already gone after the Twin Towers once. I knew they were coming back. I absolutely did knew you? they wouldn't be back. The day it happened, 9-11, did you immediately know what this was? I, I or, did. You did. I, well, I, I, you knew. I did after, yeah, after the second plane. Yes, but what I mean is you didn't think, oh, this might be... Uh, Catalonian separatists. You knew who this was, right? I, I, I knew who I knew who it was. Yeah. Just, just like the the minute that um, Waco, or 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 the minute that um, Oklahoma City happened. You knew. I knew instantly because I remember seeing and they were talking about Muslim terrorists. I said, no, uh, this, uh, uh. "This isn't a Muslim terrorist. This is 
domestic terror. In fact, I called CNN and said this is domestic terrorism. So, um, but you, but that's strange that you had, had been thinking about that. So what other columns uh, did you write? You looked back and you, you looked at the columns and said, oh. okay, maybe, but that wasn't that bad. I, I'll tell you something I'm proud of. The, when we, when we spoke of the Challenger, I told these young students in Roger Porter's class, you are gonna be lucky to have some times in your career, maybe two or three or four or five, but they don't happen every day. You don't get a lot of them. Nobody gets more than half a dozen in an entire career. But you're gonna have some moments when you get to think to yourself, this is why I'm here and this is why I'm working. This is why, I, this is, absolutely why I am here, to do the work that is here to be done this day. I had never felt that way before. I felt it again during 9-11, in the year after 9-11. I was a new columnist at the Wall Street Journal. I was writing only online, and the most amazing thing happened. We all lived through 9-11. We all lived through the shock of it and the anguish and the deep pain that New Yorkers, nobody felt what New Yorkers felt because we lost our friends, we lost firemen. We lost 343 firemen. These, that was, that's an impossible number of firemen to lose. It's just impossible. As the word came through over the days, nobody knew it happened that day. It took days to figure out what had happened. I remember I kept saying, that couldn't be true, that couldn't be true. On top of that, we saw the buildings fall which was like seeing a world end. It was like seeing the Titanic go down. So nobody experienced it, to my, in my opinion, like New Yorkers experienced it. I'm a new writer at the Journal. I've got a column. I could go, because it was online, my columns, my boss told me, Bob Bartley on the editorial page, I told him, how long should a column be? He said, gee, I don't know. It's the internet. Nobody can hear you scream. <laughs> so, so I would write 5,000-word columns. Yeah. All right, 9-11 happens. Every week I'm writing about some aspect of 9-11, some part of it. I, I, I show my heart. I mean, I show how it is hitting me in real time. And I talk about the fear, and I talk about the anguish, and I talk about what I'm seeing on the street. I got to tell you, this is one of the best things that ever happened in my professional life. People started coming to my column who had experienced 9-11 and experienced it just as I did. And it became an actual community of people talking to each other. Weeks would go by where I would quote my commenters. The commenters, some of them became my friends. It was an absolute community of, uh, of mourning and also uh, a sort of post-traumatic stress community where we all tried to understand what had happened. For that year, looking back, I didn't know it at the time, but that year, I looked back on that and thought, it's no accident that I was here. I was here to be there and to write those columns, and right. they were there to be part of the world I was so fascinating. in. fascinating. You, you talk about that community, because I, I, remembered, I remembered several columns that you wrote from that time, but I remember you talking about how we are all a community. And I, I believe the example you gave was that if you're outside of St. Patrick's uh, and you see something that doesn't look right. Oh, yes. Let's say talk something. about it. Yeah. Let's say something. And I remember reading that column thinking 
that imagining that's what it was like in America in 1942 and 1943 and 1944, in times, because for most of us, we have lived in a time where there was order. Those of us that were born near the middle of the century, a little bit after the middle of the century, there was time where we were all a big community and that community broke apart. The 60s ripped us apart. The yeah. 70s shattered us even more. But reading your columns uh, then, it was, it really was a reminder that Boy. at least in New York, that this, well, and across the country too, that, that, this, that this horrific act had actually brought America together in a way that I've never seen America together before. Well, I, it was so moving. It was, I will never forget, some of you probably did this. I, with uh, friends of mine, would go down to the West Side Highway in the 20s to see the staging area where the people, the men and women, hardworking people, would get on the buses and go down to where the Twin Towers had been to clean them out and clean them up. And they were going in there, for, they were, there were cops and firemen on those buses also looking still for people who might have survived. It was the cleanup crew and the rescue crew of New York and they barreled down the empty West Side Highway for nights and nights going downtown. And I and my friends and many people spontaneously would go there just to cheer them on, just to say thanks. It actually gets me choked up to talk about it. A lot of those people were people who had never been cheered before. Right. It was an extraordinary time um, afterwards. Actually, I was... I had just gotten out of Congress, and I, and um, when did you come out? In in uh, I, I I it's it was in two thousand two thousand one two thousand one wow two thousand one wow and was in Northwest Florida and was asked to deliver a speech, and I knew that the world had changed radically when the biggest applause line that I gave was today, I love New York. To 10,000 rednecks. They all, they, they all said, hell yeah! It was just like I was like waving a Confederate flag and singing Sweet Home Alabama. But, you know, it was, it was as if New York City, and I ca I'd come up here and I would tear up and walk, walk, walk through the streets, and it was as if New York City went from being this other world yeah. to being the heartbeat of this country yeah, on the heartless front line. To heartbeat. Heartless to heartbeat. It was really an extraordinary time. I want to get, I want to, we have so much to get through. And I'm talking since, too long. No, you're, I'm no, make no, my no, you're not. I, no, you're not. Uh, I keep doing this in interviews. I have, I, la, 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 la. Well, you know, I'm really offended by people who talk too long. <laughs> it's what I do for a living. It pays well. Um, but let's get to some different parts. Uh, you write about people that you miss. Yeah. And, um, and I want to name a couple, but before I do, why don't you uh, tell us why you decided to, to, do, to, to, to write about people you miss? Okay, you go through the boxes containing your career, the things you've written in your career, and one of the things you're going to find out is that you have a tendency to do certain things. One of the things I found out I had a tendency to do when people who moved me died, I had to write about them. It was as if I had to say, did you see that big ship on the horizon? 
It may have sunk, but I got to tell you, that was a beautiful ship. And it cut beautifully against the sky. And it went at a beautiful speed. And it was going to some destination. I just want to capture the life to the extent I can. Often these are people I've been lucky to know. And so I want everybody else to know them. Sometimes they're people I haven't known, but I've been moved by their lives. So there's Joan Rivers, who was a hilarious and fabulous human being, whose death was quite shocking to me. One, Tim Russert, who we've all been, I got to tell you, on my book tour, everybody asks about Tim Russert. Mm -hmm. Everybody still misses him, Joe. This is a guy, good journalist, good guy, honest. We have now debates over debate moderators, okay? And you all saw what happened on CNBC 10 days ago or whatever. The question isn't, you know, did this debate moderator vote Democratic or Republican? Tim Russert was a liberal Democrat. He worked for Mario Cuomo. He worked for Pat Moynihan. I think Tim would call himself a moderate Democrat. Right. He was and would be now a great debate moderator. It doesn't matter if he's a Democrat. It matters that he's fair, that he throws a fastball straight at everybody at bat. He's, he's honest. He is as tough as liberals as on conservatives, Democrats, Republicans. That's all we need now. Right. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't matter who you voted and for. It matters are you capable of fairness. And actually, he never made it about himself. Yes. Oh, Which is one of the discouraging things about these debates is it, you almost think that they're trying to get a book deal with every yes. question they yes. ask. Yes, I totally Just agree. ask. The, the moderators questions. think they are the star, the camera's right. on him, and oh yes, we have these jerks standing in a line. Yeah, exactly. You know, and they exist so that I can give them my piercing look and say, but isn't it true? Do you know what I mean? That's sort of the ego with which they're approaching this stuff now. I resent it as a viewer. I do too. Let, let's talk about two women very quickly that you wrote about missing. One, Jackie Kennedy. Oh, I wrote a piece that after she died, and you know, she was, she lived in our neighborhood. She lived on Fifth Avenue, but she lived in the 80s, and she was a neighborhood person who we all saw. Everybody said when she died that she was elegant, and very beautiful and very wealthy and very chic and all those lovely things. But my take on her, I met her once, spent part of an afternoon with her. She was a real patriot. And at a very low point in our country's history when we were feeling terrible at ourselves, terrible about ourselves, she kind of picked us up and reminded America of its own majesty <laughs> over three dreadful days. Right. And I thought, what a tough little patriot she was. So I wrote a piece <laughs> saying that. And uh, my political hero, Margaret Thatcher. Oh, great Thatcher. Thatcher, I'll tell you something about um, Thatcher's funeral. The BBC did not like Margaret Thatcher. The mainstream <laughs> media of London and of England did not like Margaret Thatcher. And amazingly, even when she died, the media, I was over there in London, would not let up and was critical of her as they covered her death. And more or less warned people it might not be a good idea to go to her funeral because there may be demonstrations and violence. I mean, it was really quite something. 
I was invited to that funeral. I felt very honored by it. And I went to that funeral. And at the end of it, and it was quite marvelous, the queen who doesn't go to prime minister's funerals, she came with Philip. And I believe she brought along Charles. But, but, or not. But, you know, it was kind of the family. Was, what the heck? But Doesn't the family really was there. Right, right. At the end of this fabulous, beautiful British dignity uh, funeral in St. Paul's Cathedral, where they actually have things like a man dressed as, as a 1600s bursar, you know, with a big staff in his hand, he was wearing the chain of St. Thomas More, which Thomas More had worn before he was, alas, beheaded by the English. But I thought, what a great people they are to honor, <laughs> to honor St. Thomas More after, you know, unfortunately they Shopping killed him. They are fabulous right. people. All right, so it's the end of this very grand, fabulous St. Paul's Cathedral uh, funeral. And we're starting to gather to go out the big doors in the center aisle. And suddenly the doors are flung open and we heard a huge echoing sound. And we all looked at each other and realized, oh no, there were demonstrations. And then we listened more closely. And we heard, oh my God, that's not yelling, that's cheers. And it was just like the death of Ronald Reagan. It was a surprising and, a, and amazing outpouring of of, in, in Reagan's case, grief right. at his death, but celebration. And in Thatcher's case, it was regular people showing up to say, yay, Maggie, it was, yay. It was unbelievable on my show, any time after Thatcher died, I would ask people from Britain, well, comment, what, talk, go back to the 1970s and what Margaret Thatcher did and blah, 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 on and on and on. Oh, she was absolutely awful. She was a beast. She was a horrible human being and the worst prime minister of the 20th century. I'd be like, well, uh, but didn't she actually, you know, give you electricity seven days a week again yeah. and actually make the train start functioning? Well, yes, yes. And didn't she save you all from becoming a third-rate pack? Well, yes, yes, she did, but she was just awful. And I swear to God, I had at least 10 people on that week, all British people, saying the most miserable things about her. But then when you asked if it was not true that she actually saved Great Britain from becoming a third-rate economic power, they had to say, alas, yes, she did. Oh, that's but, wonderful. But it, 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 I, we, that's I, something. I left it to resident Morning Joe liberal economics a uh, 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 spokesperson, Steve Ratner. Yes. Who was actually a journalist over there in the early 1980s. Yes, in the New yeah. York Times, saying, but for Margaret Thatcher, England would be France. Oh, <laughs> and, oh. And that what she did was nothing short. I love visiting France, but I'd rather have England's economy. But that she did, in fact, save that country. My favorite Margaret Thatcher story, I don't know if you've ever heard this before. Go. She was sitting right after she got elected prime minister. And she had all of her cabinet around her, all men. And she's at the end of the table. And they come in and they say, what would you like to eat? And she said, um, I'll have the steak. And the waiter said, well, what about the vegetables? And she looked at her cabinet members. She said, they'll have steak too. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Thatcher story. She was very tough. Let's move on now, Peggy. Could I just, 
Um, Let me just throw in another thing about Thatcher. One of the things I, I cherished about her is that she was Britain's first woman prime minister, but never, ever lowered herself to whining about, you're not being nice to me because I'm a woman. You're critical of me because I'm a woman. You treat me differently and badly because I'm a woman. She rarely referred to her sex, but when she did, it was to say amusing things like, if you want to get something said, always go to a man. If you want to get something done, go to a woman. Just end of amen. story. Just, I beg your pardon? I said amen. Yeah, and she was just very proud. She said, she said once, the cock crows, but it's the hen that lays the eggs. <laughs> so she was a Wait, tough little girl. And, and in that, she was like Golda Meir, who also had the same yeah. style. And in that society, it was fairly radical. Tina Brown uh, told me that Margaret Thatcher would, back in the 70s, uh, that have dinner parties, and the men would go in one room and talk after, and the women would go in the other room and talk yes. after, and they never mixed. The dinner would be over, Margaret Thatcher would walk in and talk to the men, and nobody ever questioned her. She just, she knocked down wall after wall. Let's, let's go to some, some questions, and then I have one final question for you. Great. Uh, at the end, but we, um, we're going to ask you now, this is the part of the, the show, uh, that we, uh, we let you uh, play psychiatrist for our audience members. A wonder. Um, and the first question is, why does Ted Cruz scare me? Uh, you can... Ted Cruz scares you, madam, because he has little eyes that often, <laughs> that seem to be too shrewdly appraising, if you know what I mean. Um, he also is not someone whose sincerity and earnestness you feel you can necessarily accurately gauge. Okay. Let Thank me, you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. They have cameras here. I don't. Re I'm trying not to say anything controversial. So in let this me. Let me. Court, since I normally say idiotic things that put me all yeah. over. Uh, TMC. So, so let me let let me uh, say it for you. Um, a lot of people doubt his sincerity. Yes, many and I, people do. I say that as a rock-ribbed economic conservative. Yes. And it, so much of it just looks. It uh, looks. Uh, yeah. Prepared it does. It and does. looks like some members of Congress when they would come up, and they would put their hand on my shoulder. I said, "Oh my God, he stood in front of the mirror for ten minutes and practiced that this morning." I think Ted Cruz might practice some of his speeches too much, too. Next question. Trump and Carson are in first and second, but it's obvious that they won't be the winner. Uh, who will it be? Will it be someone else? I don't know. This is the year that has confounded me. I think that's the word you used before. Mm -hmm. This has been a confounding year. On the Republican side, it's the most dramatic year since 1976, in my experience. What happened in 76? Ronald Reagan goes up against a sitting incumbent Republican president and almost takes him down. It was a very not Republican thing to do, go after your own guy and almost take him down. Goes to the convention. Uh, it went to the convention. It came within 100 delegates of about 2,000 delegate, right. de delegate votes, right? All right, that was an amazing thing. What was it about? It was about Ronald Reagan saying, 
we must decide what the Republican Party is. It will be a conservative party, or it will be this moderate liberal thing that Jerry Ford has. But we must make this decision. So Reagan goes at Ford, Ford wins, then goes down to Jimmy Carter, Reagan comes back, Reagan won a landslide in 1980, and that landslide taught the Republican Party one thing. Holy mackerel, I guess we're conservative. Look who just won. It was Reagan's second landslide in 84 that settled it for the Republican Party. When they saw his popularity, the liberals and the moderates said, you know what, that was yesterday. We are now a conservative party. So that's to me what happened starting in 76. This year, it is even more confounding. It is conservatives on the ground trying to figure out on their own by following various of these candidates what conservatism is for the 21st century. They do feel they're conservatives. They don't think they're liberals or moderates, but they are redefining what conservatism is. Donald Trump comes along. He says, I'm running as a Republican, and oh, I'm a conservative. And then he says, and I pretty much like Obamacare. I'm not going to mess with your Social Security or your Medicare. By the way, I don't want to get messed up in this Mideast thing anymore. If Putin's in there and bombing ISIS, I'm happy to see him bombing ISIS. That is one kind of conservatism. Ted Cruz's conservatism is something else. I'm not sure what Ben Carson's conservatism is. I really am not sure. I, I, yeah. yeah, but yeah. I mean, Ben Carson, I think, is hard for me and Joe to understand. We understand political folks. We understand, or at least I understand, business people. I see the nexus between business and politics. I see the connection between economic operators and politics. The connection between a neurosurgeon and politics is just less clear to me. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, yeah. but I will say very briefly, and then I'll stop, you've got Trump's popularity, Carson's popularity, add in Carly Fiorina. According to the polls, these three people add their support together. They are supported by more than half of the Republican base. That tells me everything is up for grabs on the Republican base. I have, this year, no idea who is going to win the nomination. Do you think, you don't even have to tell me who you think it is, but do you think you know? Um, I think uh, that right now there is not, because what I always looked at when I was running uh, for office was I was looking at trends. Yeah. And once uh, narrative set in on the campaign, I was looking to see what would change that. Would there be an October surprise? What, would, what could change things? And right now, I'm having a hard time trying to figure out what is going to get in the way, if we keep going the way we're going, of Donald Trump being ahead by 30 points in South Carolina, being yeah. ahead 30 points in Oklahoma, being ahead by 20 points in Texas, being ahead. I, I, we have been saying for 100 days yeah. The elites have been saying for 100 days, well, people are going to come to their census and they're going to start voting for Bush or Rubio or yes, the yeah. establishment-type candidates. You've it ain't to, happening You've yet. talked about it and I've yeah. talked about yeah, it. We both Our have. relatives, they text, us, they text us all day about Donald Trump nonstop. I had in my home, 
Four people from Florida visiting me. I live in Connecticut now. Four people from Florida, all professionals, all with advanced degrees. I decide I'm going to have a focus group, my own little focus group. And so as we're eating pizza, we, I feed my, my friends very well. As we're feeding pizza, going around, I said, who are you voting for? Swear to God, all four of them. Trump, how about you? Trump, how about you? Trump, how about you? Trump. One of those, one of the best spine doctors in all of Florida. Wow. Another one, a college professor. And I asked, I said, you're from Florida. What about Marco Rubio? Eh, he's too young. What about Jeb Bush? I didn't even think about it. Ooh. Which is the unkindest cut of all. So Joe has that going on. I get uh, texted a lot by a relative, by my sister, who is a very big on Trump person. I was on a Sunday show recently, and the anchor comes in, and he starts talking, and he laughs, and he says something critical on the show had been said about Trump. And he said, well, I'll be hearing from so-and-so. And he mentioned the name of his sister, for she compulsively texts him when anything critical is said about Donald I, Trump. So I, Trump people are so motivated. Joe, please tell me. Yeah. You'll get this. Let's say Trump is going to be the nominee. Let's say right. he walks into that uh, convention mm -hmm. with enough delegates. What happens to the Republican Party? Does it rupture? Does it fracture? Does the Republican establishment say, okay, I guess we're for Trump? What happens? It depends on what would happen between now and July. I suspect if Donald Trump wins a contest or two, he will start becoming more and more mainstream. Rudy Giuliani, who we had on the show, I asked him, what do you think of Trump? What, what, what can you tell us about Trump? He's unconventional. I've known, I've known Donald personally for 10 years. Yeah. Um, and I knew the answer while he was saying it. Mika and I have been actually good friends with Donald for 10 years. And Giuliani said, he's one of the fastest learners I've ever met. And he walks into every meeting underestimated. And what people don't understand, and, and Rudy said this off camera, so he wasn't playing for anybody. Got it, got it. And he said, what Putin wouldn't understand is, he would walk into the room, and if he did ever negotiate with Putin, Putin would see him as a joke coming in, and it wouldn't be three weeks later that until he realized that Donald Trump had just like stolen all the money in his pocket. He said, Donald Trump does not, and he said, and we, we negotiated with him in the city. And he's a chum, he's like, you gotta come out to my golf course, it's a great, and he said, he's sitting here talking, and it's like three or four weeks later, and you're like, oh my God, this guy just completely destroyed me in a negotiation. And he said it was part of an act. He said, most people go into negotiations, and we, we do, most of us say, okay, Let's get something where you win and I win. He said, Donald Trump sees it as a zero-sum game. He goes into negotiations to win. I am going to win. The other person is going to lose. But I'm going to make them think they won. The only other time I've ever heard of a public figure described this way was when Newt Gingrich came down to HC5, which is in the basement of the Capitol, to once again apologize to those of us that were about to dethrone him as Speaker of the House for being so badly out-negotiated by Bill Clinton. Yeah. And Newt said, 
it's like you hand him all the money in your wallet and then you're sitting there looking at him and you're feeling guilty that you don't have more money to give him. <laughs> that, that somehow Bill Clinton would be like, well, if that's all you have. And so, I think the one thing that Donald Trump has, knowing him, and Mika will say the same thing, a liberal yeah. Democrat, that Ronald Reagan had was the genius of knowing that the greatest thing he had going for him was always being underestimated, always being considered the fool. Yes, Always dismissed. being considered the bumbler, always being, like right now, Donald Trump's not even speaking in complete sentences. <laughs> and actually, I've actually called him up and I said, Donald, listen, you need to speak in complete sentences in debates. And he goes, I'm up 30 points, Joe. I'm a good point, Donald. <laughs> After the second debate, I hope we don't have reporters here. After the second debate, Peggy, mm. I walked down to his office. I said, Donald, do you know how to read? And he stared at me and he said, what do you mean? Mika got very nervous and she was like, yeah, Joe, what do you mean? I said, can you actually read? And he said, yes. Why? I said, you should read before a debate. I was like, read, Donald. He goes, I don't have to. Read I, what did you mean? Well, read. I mean, just like, I said, read a paragraph Study. on Syria. Oh. Read a paragraph on education reform. Read a paragraph. But what Donald Trump brings is gut instinct and strength. And I, I don't know, Peggy, I guess Republicans are so tired of losing on the presidential level, they want strength. Or also yeah. electing Republicans that promise, and I need to talk about a dark time in your, your, your time at the Wall Street Journal, electing Republicans that promise one thing yeah. and doing another. And we, let's talk about it right now. Oh my gosh. I both got absolutely massacred by George W. Bush's White House we around did. 2000. And Peggy and I would yeah. always talk about it. We all had scars because I, called, I wrote a book in 2004 saying, why vote for George W. Bush? He's the biggest deficit spender. Like, you know, I mean, Bill Clinton had a much, much better record. You likewise got in trouble because George W. Bush promised a... a a humble foreign policy, and you wrote a column in 2005 about that second inaugural address, basically saying, what the hell was that? I was kind of shocked. And they, they turned the guns on you. Oh, they did. They, they really, but, they were so bad to me that I actually got called, from a, called by a humble freshman senator who said, I didn't even know him, but he said, Mrs. Noonan, I just wanted to say, you don't deserve this. And then he hung up the phone. It was so <laughs> pathetic. It was like a little Republican voice. Uh, uh, it's just, you don't deserve it. I gotta go now. <laughs> Do you know yeah. what I mean? But, it, but they, the, the Bush operation was a very rough and could be a very mean operation. And I indeed, I mean, I've been very supportive of Bush, but then he made this second inaugural that so shocked me because I thought it was so crazy this is the inaugural in which he was going to outlaw uh, uh, injustice. What he, was he, he going to outlaw? He was going to end tyranny, end tyranny on all four corners of the globe. And it was like 
some grand neoconservative berserk it, vision it was, of American it was aggression beyond, that shocked me. It was beyond Wilsonian. We Republicans. Yes, it was. Made Wilson a, look like a piker. Yes. Exactly. So, so I said that. I mean, I wrote a strict editorial. Oh, man, you have no idea. In the Internet age, when they want to get you, they will just, they have people go after you in so many ways publicly. They get their consigliers to, to write terrible columns about you. This was all a White House operation. It was really ugly. It was terrible. It changed some of my relationships, actually, for probably the rest of my life. Yeah. <clears throat> it did, and Joe went through a similar thing. I then also, unfortunately, two years later, I disagreed with Bush so much on immigration that I just slammed him on immigration, and they went through it again. So yeah. I had a one-two punch on that. I, I, um, I actually, I was telling Mika the story of somebody that worked at the Bush White House in 2005 that called me up and was tearing me up. And I finally said to her, I said, listen, you've got to decide today. Are you my friend? Oof. Because let me tell you something. I've been around long enough to know he's going to leave Washington. I'm going to be around forever. Oh, well done. To which she replied, I'm your friend. Oh, oh my but God! That is the thing. Oh, though, the they're arrogance. they're mean, but mean the, but, and arrogant. But but it's this, the meanest White House I ever saw. Yeah, Go ahead. and this is why, though, for people that don't understand why Carson and Trump are doing so well, we Republicans have been lied to for thirty years and told, "Vote for us. We're going to balance your budgets, and we're going to have a humble foreign policy, yeah. and we're going to be restrained." And they don't do it. I, I don't know that Donald Trump's the answer to restraint, but we'll see how that goes. <laughs> William F. Buckley had a great way of bringing conservatives together of different stripes. The conservative movement he united once again is fractured. Yeah. Is there a modern figure who can bring together, uh, bring together the conservative movement again like Buckley? No, I don't think so. Bill Buckley had very particular power in the way that Ronald Reagan did too. They were the first guys. Buckley was doing the intellectual heavy lifting of this new thing called conservatism. Nobody, you know, people didn't used to say, I'm a conservative in America. It was Buckley who started to made that term current in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. He was a dominant figure in a limited media world. He had a magazine, and it was the most powerful magazine in conservative media. It was called National Review. Now there's 10, 20, 40, 80 magazines and 400 radio shows and major networks of conservative thought. So when you have all that going on, you will not have, you'll have a lot of varied voices, but you won't have one dominant voice, I think. Right. Am I wrong? I, I think you're exactly right. But, but I do think, though, I, when I hear people say, oh, the presidency's too big for one person, um, or oh, the speakership is too big for one person, or oh, there will never be another person that can bring this party together or that party together, I don't think that's the case. I do think that maybe the conservative movement will never be united like it was before, but just in general, I think so much of it just has to do with poor leadership. Yeah, I, I agree. I really do. I, agree. I think the quality of leadership, unfortunately, has, has, has sunk. I remember reading uh, columns uh, in 1979 
about how the presidency was too big for one man because yes. Kennedy had been assassinated, Johnson had failed, Nixon had failed, yes. Ford had failed, Carter had failed. Failure after failure. Failure after failure. It's just become too big. And then Ronald Reagan got elected and suddenly... And was a spectacular success. And, and they started talk, whining about the imperial presidency. Yeah, And <laughs> George H.W. Bush came after him. Right. Not as great a success, but a very capable presidency. Right. It, so it's not too big. Can I tell you something I fear? Think about this. Do you fear that you, sound? Because I do. Does it, that mean something bad's about to happen? Uh, um, I don't think so. Okay. I think, I think it's Good. just one of those glitchy little things somebody's taken care of. But I'm a real optimist. Um, um, Here's an anxiety of mine. When I look at history, political history, the past few decades, I keep going back to Reagan answered those questions through popularity. He had landslides that told America, okay, America's made a decision. He had another landslide now America's really kind of together. It's, it's really made a decision together. It was Reagan's landslides that forced Tip O'Neill to meet with him and mm-hmm. deal with him. Right. Reagan was so popular, you, had to, you couldn't avoid it. You had to deal. Right. All right, here's the problem. We aren't living in landslide America anymore. We're living in more broken up, fractured pieces of things America. George W. Bush in 2000 won, quote unquote, but by losing the popular vote. In 2004, he won, but won only by a few points against John Kerry. Uh, Barack Obama comes by in 08 after two on one wars and the Great Recession and still wins by only a few points. Mm -hmm. Three, four, Mm -hmm. five points? Right. Not near a landslide. Obama guts it out in 2012. No landslide. I am not sure landslides are going to help solve our problems in the future because we're living in a different America. So I worry about that. Am I making too much of landslides? No, I don't think so. I do think, though, that we have been electing for too long now politicians that, that buy into just how fractured this country is yeah. and don't understand that... Um, and I say this all the time, uh, whether I'm speaking in Demopolis, Alabama, or speaking at the 92nd Street Y, I say the same exact thing. And I've got to tell you, in 1968 or 1976, or probably even in 1985, there would be a great difference between what people in Demopolis, Alabama, or the 92nd Street Y thought. I see less and less oh, and less too. of that yeah. every day. Yeah. I can tell you... <laughs> I can tell you that the people in the 92nd Street Y want the same thing as people in Demopolis, Alabama. They may disagree on a few things, but they think Washington is out of touch. Yes. They still believe that this is a great country, and we don't have enough politicians going out there talking about the fact that eight out of ten of the greatest universities in the world are in this country. We have an energy revolution that wasn't started in Washington, but it was started when somebody had the crazy idea to drill sideways instead of down. Yeah. And suddenly, the energy, uh, our energy capacities changed forever, forever. And I think at the end of the day, Steve Jobs was right. We're different. We're crazy. Like, people in China, I will never stop. 
Yeah. I, 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 will, I will never stop. I have, I have a three-hour show, baby. I've just started. Um, and, but, but to finish, and this is why people are so pessimistic, because of her. She's the one person. Um, but I think we elect people who underestimate America and underestimate Americans. And I think they're just too pessimistic. And I think if somebody actually dared to try to unite Americans and look past the extremists on both sides, the gerrymandered political system we have in Washington, yeah, they may not win 49 states, but I bet they could win 40. Boy, that would be a beautiful thing to see once again. I have be been, beautiful. I've been told to shut up, so I'm going to speak for another five minutes. <laughs> I just, I do want to read one thing and ask you final question here, because one of the things that I've always learned from you about working for Ronald Reagan was how Ronald Reagan was such an optimist, and he infused it in every line you wrote. If you wanted to say, if you wrote a line to him that said, we cannot fail, he would draw a line through it and say, we must succeed. Yes, that's right? true. So He wouldn't let you say, I will never forget. He would change it to, I will always remember. So in the introduction, um, and, and I had seen an excerpt uh, from, from the introduction here, that uh, you talked about a concern. There are not fewer children living stressed, chaotic lives in America now. There are more. There will still be more uh, because, among the things, America is no, it no longer manufactures stability. And the culture around them will not protect them. The culture, as of the culture, protected me. And uh, you go on and on that their uh, nerves are essentially shot uh, and they are very angry. Yeah. It doesn't sound like Peggy Noonan. You, oh, you, no kidding. You, you sound like you're having a crisis of confidence of where America is right now, at least in this introduction. Oh, it, oh no kidding. I, I didn't feel that way, and I, I don't think I feel that way, but I am worried about American families, and I'm worried about America and drugs. I'm worried about the American fabric holding <laughs> on I'm worried about the number of kids coming up who are having, who are from families that do not cohere or are not able to protect them from the larger culture. And those kids are being exposed to life through a culture that can be very dark and disturbing. And those kids, I think, are going to get in some trouble. And I think it's something we got to be, be, uh, thinking about and looking at. A, a reporter for Time Magazine asked me about this same spot, this same thing that you just mentioned. And he said, what does this, what are you telling me in terms of policy about what, what you're thinking might be the answer to that? And I said, first conversation, second attention, and third, you know what? I think we're gonna have to spend more on facilities to help kids coming up in unwholesome environments and also kids who are getting trouble on drugs. I'm very big on, yeah. I'm sorry, I think we need more hospitals and more psychiatric help in exactly. America. And, and I don't mean that as a pessimistic thought, I mean that as a Burkean thought, as right. in Edmund Burke, as in see the reality around you. That's why, that's why you're my type of conservative, Peggy, there. Baby, 
Joe, can I say, I forgot to say I was nervous when I started. Joe's the only person I asked to come here, and I wanted to come here. I wanted to sit next to him as we used to on Morning Joe and as we did the other day. Joe makes everything interesting and compelling, but he also just kind of shows up and makes it an event. He certainly does for me. Thank you. And I thank you for that. You, you made this fun. Peggy Noonan, everybody. Thank you, honey. I hope we didn't go over that. was great. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations on 92yondemand.org.